Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a real inspiration. They say you never forget how to ride a bicycle. South Africa's Keegan Girdlestone is living proof. He was 19 years old and one of cycling's rising stars when a crash during a race in Italy sliced open his neck and spilled out so much blood it stained the road for months. The first reports on the scene pronounced Keegan dead. It was that bad. Once he was in hospital, doctors thought he wouldn't last the next 24 hours, and if he did, he'd likely be brain dead the rest of his life. Three days later, Keegan woke up, and his recovery is one for the books. Here's his story. I've always overdone it as a kid. When I mean overdone it, I don't mean love. Like I've, I've just always pushed myself. Mm-hmm. So if, if, we're, if I'm 14 or 15... I don't ride against 15-year-olds. I ride against like 18 to 20-year-olds. So I do get a walloping, but um, I learn from it. <laughs> Why don't we start early on for you to go back to how you got into the sport in the first place. If you can take me back to what really got your interest in cycling. Well, I guess I kind of grew up doing it. Um, my family wasn't always bike riders. Like my, my dad only got into it when I was, I was still young, but it wasn't from... From what I can remember, because my dad used to race motorbikes, but he crashed and broke quite a few bones of his motorbike. Mm-hmm. And then my mother bought him a road bike as a form of rehab to mend the knees that he broke. So um, for, since there, dad started actually loving cycling. And from there, it kind of grew into a passion. And then my older brother, my dad and my brother would ride a lot together. And obviously, I was way too young to, to ride with them. So I'd always watch on the sidelines. So you, you come from a, a cycling family? Yeah, I guess so. Well, yes, actually I do because um, I believe my great-great-grandfather was the first person to ride back in the 90s already when the roads were all gravel and pave. They, he rode a penny farthing from Port Elizabeth to Cape Town in South Africa, which is pretty bloody long way. <laughs> so, so it goes back a few generations for you then, the uh, being yeah. on a bicycle and the, and the comfort there. South Africa is home for you originally? Yes. What, what was the feel like in, in Pretoria? Well, Pretoria is about 50 kilometers from Johannesburg, so it's still pretty, um, pretty big. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, the roads there are very busy. There's not much rural roads, really. It's not a city. Where we lived, it wasn't really a city, but it was very um, built-up areas. So compared to where I live now in New Zealand, it's completely different. When did cycling go from uh, more or less a hobby into a serious pursuit for you? Well, I guess cycling was always quite dominant throughout my life. I remember doing, uh, I think I'm still probably the youngest person to do a 10-kilometer race. Well, this, at least this 10-kilometer race. I think I was about three years old. <laughs> I was I was on like a bike, and I remember my mom was pushing me pretty much the whole way. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, so I think well, obviously I wasn't taking anything seriously back then. But I think it became a definitive sort of art for me when I was about fourteen. Yeah. Because um, at school it was pretty much compulsory to do all other sports. We had to do a sport, and unfortunately um, I couldn't get out of that. So I was doing a lot of other sports. But, yeah, so I think when I was about 14, I got really serious about it. Um, and I even did a charity ride with the school, which was a, over 1,000 kilometers in eight days. And I did that, which is probably really good for my base training. <laughs> was that your first taste of of doing 
100 kilometer plus days of riding? Yeah, actually, before then, I'd never ridden 100 kilometers before. Uh-huh. I, I remember training just before, like a week before, we were doing like a 100k training ride with the school, and we were getting ready, and I was like, this is going to be my first 100k ride before the race, uh, before the, the charity ride. And in that ride, I remember crashing, and I had to get back into the car, and I couldn't ride. So I never actually did a 100K until that point, and I was absolutely gutted. So as the years go on, when do you start going into serious races, competing, uh, and start to take real interest in, in stock in how you're finishing races? And... Well, actually, in 2014, that same year, I was doing a lot of mountain biking um, for the school as well. So it was a bit of national mountain biking. And I was doing quite well there. But then, so I was obviously getting some sort of training out of, explosive training out of that. But that year before I left to go to, to come to New Zealand, and the year I left, I became the under-16 national champion of South Africa. So I was... 14 or 15, and I'd um, I won the national title. And then following that, I went on to to do a national tour, my first national tour, where um, I finished third overall and won the Young Riders jersey by like 18 minutes or something. Take me from then until 2016, how you progressed in the sport from there. You've moved to New Zealand. When did you get involved with your current team, and how were things going for you? So in 2012 was when I won the um, junior title, or the under-16 title. And then I, so from there I went to New Zealand, where I basically, um, my very first day in New Zealand really, I went on a tra- on a bunch ride, where just by chance we bumped into one of the, the, the head of cycling for one of the probably the most prestigious schools in Christchurch. And I just bumped into him and we were riding together and he obviously saw I was quite strong for such a young rider. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up doing a sprint, as most bunch rides have. And I ended up beating all the old guys. And he was like, oh, what school do you go to? And I said, I don't go to one yet. I've only just got here. <laughs> so he was like, you have to come to our school. Um, and then I eventually did. And then it progressed on where I started doing some school racing. I went up to do the school's nationals, which is pretty much in, um, every school around the country sends pretty much their best riders mm-hmm. to this event. So it's pretty much like the national championships, but it's just not um, the national championships. <laughs> um, so I went there and no one knew who I was. First race I ever did against the um, New Zealanders as a whole with the North and South Island. Uh-huh. And I ended up riding away. So I won that. And then from there, I progressed on to 2013. So... In 2013, I did the the race for the first time, which was a 100-kilometer race uh-huh. in Christchurch. And it's in that 100 kilometers, you do pretty much just under or just over 2,000 meters of climbing. And this is all just around Christchurch? Yeah. Okay. So it's from Christchurch to Akaroa, which is um, a small French town, basically 100 kilometers away. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and it's over some insane mountain, like really good climbs. Um, and the most amazing scenery, but I wasn't exactly focusing on that at the time. But um, the, so my first race, and this is against elite riders, so pretty much the best of New Zealand were coming down because it's a very prestigious race. And I managed to get up the first climb. So the race pretty much starts up a climb that's over 20 minutes long. 
Okay. So usually the best of the best go over the top first and they never get seen again. Mm-hmm. And somehow I managed to get over the front with the leading seven riders. And I'd basically been on my limit for the first half an hour of the race. At my young age, I think I averaged over 190 heartbeats per minute uh-huh. for that duration. Um, Jeez. And, and I was in the front group with guys who've ridden overseas, guys who are currently riding overseas, national champions who are a lot older than me. And I was only 15 at the time. And I was definitely in over my head. But unfortunately, my naivety was both the reason I was there, but also the reason I blew later on in the race. <laughs> because I'm just not acclimatized to doing such a hard effort and, and didn't have the ability to recover. And by the time we had done the flats, I was too weak to actually pull turns in the flat because I was just, I just couldn't make the power because obviously I'm so young. Mm-hmm. And I've just done probably the hardest effort of my life, which it was until that point. I actually never went that hard again for at least another year and a half until the next year when I came back to the race when I actually won it at the age of 16, becoming the youngest person to have ever done so. How was the feeling there? Oh, that was an amazing feeling. <laughs> especially because it was such a prestigious race i didn't even i didn't really um know it was as prestigious as it was Uh uh-huh so what comes next so basically the week the next week i go to australia and so i was 16 i just come from i just won the race i was on a massive high and i went over to australia with big ambitions and everyone told me don't go over with ambitions to do well just finish and learn because you will get dropped and that's what everyone's mentality was. And I was like, no, stuff that. I'm going to go there and give it a go. Mm-hmm. I don't care who's on the start line. So I did my research and I found out that I'm racing against riders that have done the Tour de France. Some One of one of the riders had done the Tour de France. So the competition was a major step up. And I've been going from 50 rider races to now 160 riders on the start line, which is a massive jump. And mm-hmm. I was terrified for a lot of the racing. <laughs> That went on that day, well, that that weekend. But um, I learned and I adapted very quickly. And essentially, I was like the little dog, the little dog that was watching the big dogs fight over the bone. <laughs> and I kind of just went with it. So I had to learn really fast how to ride a criterium, which is probably the most terrifying thing in Australia because it's a whole bunch of crazy riders going full gas into corners. Uh-huh. And I'd never experienced anything like it. And this is when my um, my relationship with Budget Forklifts came into play because they, they looked after me because they were actually winning the tour. So they had to control the race and they allowed me to. They, they allowed me to sit in their train, which never happens. Uh-huh. So I was quite fortunate with that, which very much helped my chances. So in the end, I actually finished the tour third overall, the best young rider. It was my first ever National Road Series race. Uh-huh. Um, I'd beaten the likes of professional riders and i was still and i'd only only just turned 16 uh-huh. so that was pretty much the the launch of a whole lot of results let's go to june 5th 2016 you're in italy at this point you're doing a one-day road race and things start to go wrong to put it lightly what happened to you on the road well, I mean, we were doing quite well in the race, and we were controlling the race for some reason. I don't know why we were, but we were, which is which was good for us because we we were finding our legs as a team. And then we we were riding the front, and I wanted to stay. We it was it's a fight to always stay at the front of the peloton. Uh-huh. And up one of the climbs, I was descending to kind of bridge up again because a gap. I was 
dropping a bit on the climbs because it was a short, sharp, steep climb, and I, I was struggling a bit. And I managed to, I'd have to sort of catch up back on the downhill. And I got this downhill pretty nailed, but for some reason I pulled front brake and then I washed out on the downhill, uh-huh. crashing. And I took out my team leader and I felt real bad, as one would. I got back on my bike a bit dazed and I'd, I'd just recovered from breaking my scaphoid and my hand was a bit sore. Mm-hmm. I got back on my bike and then for some reason, I, I, my, my front wheel felt like it wasn't working, like it should, so I stopped again. I fiddled a bit with my front wheel until it felt normal, and then I carried on. But now at this point, I'd lost a bit of time, so I was smashing it to get back on to the convoy. Right. And I remember looking up, and the cars were still way ahead of me. And then I looked down, and then all of a sudden, I looked up, and then my team car was in front of me, and it was too late to do anything i didn't even comprehend what had happened by the time it had happened and then the next thing i know i wake up three days later in a hospital what are your memories from that part waking up in hospital what is your last memory before waking up and then sort of your your memories from that time period uh in the in the immediate days after uh the crash well um my last memory uh, I, I knew when I, when it had happened, I'd cut my throat. I could feel the, this warm liquid running down my neck. But um, everything was black at this point, but I could still feel that sensation. And then the last thing I remember was an spectator going, piano, 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 which is like obviously telling me to take it easy. Uh-huh. I believe my eyes were open at this point. But, um, yeah, I, I couldn't, um, I don't remember anything. Yeah. So then you wake up in hospital three days later. Did you have memory of what had happened or were you disoriented and, and needed to be told, here's what happened? I mean, I knew what had happened, but I didn't really register. Like, it, it didn't seem real. Uh-huh. So I woke up and I was very confused. Obviously, I was quite broken at that point. So I wasn't really clicking at what had happened or what was going on. I wasn't really thinking of anything. I remember seeing... I remember seeing people, but I wasn't actually thinking, like, where the hell am I or uh-huh. what's going on. It was just like I just knew there's people around me. Um, I assumed I was in the hospital, but I didn't really think about it too much. Was your family or were your teammates already there, or was it just you and, and the Italian doctors? No, it was my, my mom and dad were there with yeah. my writer agent. Uh-huh. He was um, He's a fluent Italian, so he could he was translating for me. Uh-huh. The doctors were talking to me, but they were talking to me in Italian. Right. I could not register what the hell was going on. So they, they told my parents I was brain damaged, and I couldn't understand what, what they were saying. But then my parents were like, well, you're t- talking to him in Italian. He's not Italian. He doesn't understand Italian. <laughs> so <laughs> so my agent was translating for me what they were saying. And when I, I remember hearing him tell me to squeeze my hand when they told me to squeeze or lift my leg or right leg or left leg or move whatever part of my body they wanted me to. But I don't really remember actually doing it, but apparently I did it. I uh-huh. obviously did it. But I didn't actually try and do it, or I don't think, or I don't remember doing, wanting to do it or thinking about doing it. I just remember him telling me to squeeze and lift my leg or move my foot. To be told that you had brain damage, I mean, that's a, that's a scary thing to hear. What were you thinking at the time? What was going through your head hearing the news being translated to you? Well... Unfortunately, there was a language barrier, so a lot of uh, information was lost in communication. Mm-hmm. 
but um, they, I don't recall them. I mean, they did tell me I had brain damage, but my, my parents didn't want me to really know right. for, for a while. So I only really found out sort of the extent of what was happening over a period of time. I didn't even know I had a massive scar on my neck for a few weeks. So you weren't, you didn't like see yourself in in the reflection of the mirror or anything like that in the in the time of between. Um, no, there was no mirror. Yeah, um, I was in ICU, so there was nothing going on really. Um, I could only see my parents for like two or three hours a day uh-huh. before they would leave, but I don't remember much of my time in ICU. I remember it was very long days. The first few were the worst because I was very much in a lot of pain as well as having crazy hallucinations because of whatever drugs they put me on. Mm-hmm. So um, it was not a pleasant time, that's for sure. But um, I think I was very lucky and fortunate that my parents had flown over because wanting to see my parents every day, even for a short period of time, was pretty much probably the, the only thing that really got me through the days, I think. How much blood did you lose in that accident uh and and what were the odds that you were given if you know maybe you didn't they didn't tell you at the time but but after hearing after the fact what kind of odds you had and just um how much blood you did lose at the time well i lost pretty much my entire blood supply um i don't know the exact number but i think it was something like eight pints of blood Uh something like that which is quite a lot um my chance to live was pretty much zero they told Initially, the the first reporters that came out that were at the accident that saw it happen, or not saw it happen, but you know saw saw the aftermath of what had happened, they just were like, "No, nah, this guy's dead." Like that's so much blood. Uh-huh. My blood stained the roads for a few months, or like a month or two. Jeez. So you could actually like they couldn't actually clean it off. So the first reports was initially I was dead, but then um, once I once I'd been on operation and come out they they said we give him 24 hours and then by the time my parents had come they said we don't give him we will give him like one more day to live uh-huh. and if he does survive he'll probably be brain dead for the rest of his life wow but these were things obviously i, I didn't know didn't right here i just sort of, sort of just woke up and was like hey guys what's up <laughs> yeah so uh take take me through the recovery process what, what did it take for you to even get out of the hospital bed and uh to start walking again let alone get on a bicycle yeah, it was a very, very painful process. Now, the mo- the thing I've heard the most ever since my accident is the word patience. Yeah. And I believe I've got an exceptional amount of this thing called patience. But I don't like hearing it because it sucks. Uh-huh. you got to realize I- I'm a young kid who's had this massive dream of wanting to race in the Tour de France and race overseas and who's pretty much been riding his whole life, and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you can't ride a bike, you can't sit up, you just got to be patient. It's like, well, what? So initially, well, actually, they didn't say you've got to be patient. They just, they've always said, we don't think you'll ride a bike again. Uh-huh. So that they, they were never reassuring. They didn't want to reaffirm it just in case it didn't happen, so they don't want to be liable for any sort of thing that they say, like, oh, we gave you false hope or whatever, which is pretty much what doctors do, and I'm okay with that, but um, I don't listen to that. <laughs> so the first sort of stages was to actually get me sitting up first because I've been vertical for so long. When I sat up, I would pretty much just get dizzy and pass out. Well, I wouldn't pass out, but I'd feel like I'd pass out. Mm-hmm. And that was because of my the blood pressure would change very drastically. So it became very um, it became a very annoying process and very 
painful process of setting me up. But this only happened after I had enough strength to. Well, I didn't even have the strength, but they um I had to they had to feed me enough protein because I was no food. I was no like a, I couldn't I wasn't I never ate food for about three weeks, which is the worst time of my life. Wow. I've never craved something so badly in my life because mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't even allowed to drink water because of um my epiglottis in my throat wasn't working properly, and so if I I could actually drown on on water if I try to drink it. So could they feed you like intravenously or or how did it work in that time period? Yeah, so I was fed through a nose pipe. Oh man. So that was awful. <laughs> yeah. But um, eventually, um, I was able to start drinking a small bit of water. Um, so I was the only sort of water I could have was through a syringe. They would have to just slow, slowly squirt small amounts of water into mm-hmm. my mouth. And then once that was improving, they started feeding me these protein-like chocolate sort of drinks, milk drinks, which was awesome. I loved them. <laughs> And I would have them. They they pretty much got me to a stage where they were like, "You just have me, as many as you want," because uh-huh. the whole the purpose was to get as much nutrients in me. So. So how many were you drinking? Um, well, I I could only really drink them when mother came to visit, because uh-huh. mom mom would be the one that would hold the straw in my mouth. Because <laughs> at this point, my arms wouldn't work. Uh-huh. So. Uh, both of them wouldn't work. So if I got itchy, I was like, Mom, I'm itchy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you scratch me? Because, <laughs> um, yeah, the one was very severely damaged, nerve damage, so it was pretty much fully paralyzed at the time. And then the left hand was brain damaged, so it was far weaker, and I really struggled to move it around and all of that. So I had to get a lot of assistance. I was very much relied on everyone else to do things for me, to feed me, to all getting bath was horrendous. Uh-huh. But we eventually got to the point where they had sat me up for the first time and it felt weird, very, very weird. But th- th- they sat me up with a lot of pillows holding me up. Mm-hmm. So pretty much I didn't, need, I didn't require any strength to, to sit up. They just wanted me to sit up to get my bowels to move again, to, to work again. Right, right. Because everything sort of stopped working. And then I left the UCI, I mean, the UCI, the ICU, to go to a rehabilitation center, which was re- remarked as probably the, one of the best in Italy. And they were, they, they were very, very good. Um, I, the first week, I'd say, was like, I, I didn't feel like we were going to get anywhere at this point because they weren't working on anything. But they couldn't because of the pain I was in, so they, they, they couldn't do much. So that was an incredibly slow process, mm-hmm. one in which felt like would never end. But then eventually we got me sitting up through putting um, compression socks on my legs to try and keep the blood pressure even. So I'd wear these tidy whities on my legs to keep me, to keep the blood sort of working uh-huh. until we got me finally sitting up for the first time really since the accident. And this became sort of my workout was to sit up for as much as I could handle really during a day and then they decided that i was lying in my bed too much so we need to get him into a wheelchair so eventually they got me into a wheelchair i had to learn how to like transition with the help of a nurse or my mother to get into the wheelchair from a bed Uh because my legs don't work very well they're very very weak 
I could pick them up off the bed into the air maybe four times before getting fatigued. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that was that was a mission. But then once I was in the wheelchair, they wanted me to spend as much time as I could in the wheelchair. Because I was lying down for so long, my, my bowels had pretty much stopped working, so I was becoming very constipated and was very uncomfortable and wasn't very good for my health at the time did they have you hooked up like did did you have did you need a catheter and did you need like the like the bags that are attached to you or were they still getting you up and moving you during that time i was lucky enough to get rid of the catheter when i left icu Uh uh-huh but they started using these um these like condoms so it's a condom that goes over the penis Uh and then you pee into a bag so it's the same thing but with just you don't need the catheter yeah um Yes, and then I finally, they finally took me off of the nose piece feeding tube. Okay, yeah. And then I could start to slowly eat, but then pretty much all the food I was eating was puree. Right. So all of it was really mashed. And over time, then I started eating pastas um, and then some meat, which is awesome. I love that. And then mom and dad were getting sneaky and they were giving me like pizzas and because we're in Italy, of course, I want pizza, uh-huh. pizzas and burgers and Chinese and all the good food. But they weren't, they weren't even worried about it. They were like, yeah, bring him as long as he doesn't choke. It's fine. Bring him in. Uh-huh. Um, so I was eating ridiculous amounts of food, probably more than I eat today. Right. But, but, um, but I mean, you, you had lost so much weight, I'd imagine, during that time that you, you needed it. Yeah, I lost 16 kilos, so. Yeah. I was incredibly, incredibly um, thin, which made things quite difficult. But then sort of um, the time had sort of come where it was time for them to, to really push me a bit. So I would do, I would try and stand up, but then I really, I quickly realized that my legs don't really work at all. Mm-hmm. So what had happened was we, they put me on a wheelchair and then told me to try and stand but I had no strength to actually lift my bottom off the off the off the chair, and so that was quite a mission. Mm-hmm. So they started sort of started picking me up, and had me standing, and then just said, "Okay, well, just stand and hold on to this little walking thing." Right. But it was just it was stuck though, so it wouldn't move. So I would just stand there, and I think the first time I stood was for like 20 seconds, and then I sat down, and they're like, "Okay, we'll do it again." But at this point, I'm terrified because. I'm scared I'll fall for one right. and hurt myself again. You get really, you get terrified of just the weirdest things when you're in that sort of position. I got scared when they try and transition me over from the chair to the wheelchair of, to the bed. Mm-hmm. I get terrified that I'd fall at that point, just because I know I can't get up. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so those sort of things became quite challenging. And then I. Eventually, I took my first steps. I walked across the room, and then they were like, "Okay, that's cool." And I said, "No, I'm going to walk back now." And and how? Like, whoa, whoa. Uh, how 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 many weeks was this after you had first ended up in hospital? It was it was, it was about a month, four weeks. Yeah, after the yeah, okay, yeah. So what happened when you said, "No, you want to walk back the other way?" Yeah, so I walked across the room with this little like old granny sort of thing that the old people have when they when they struggle walk right and and yeah so it was a oh, walking ad that's what it's called <laughs> um and then um yeah i had that to walk across the room but at this point my legs are shaking to high heaven and back and i walked across the room and they were like yeah good job we, we do want to sit down we'll bring we'll bring the wheelchair to you and you can just sit down here 
And I was like, no, no, I'm going to turn around and walk back. Uh-huh. And I did. And then sort of from that day on, I spent more, more time sitting in the chair because the Tour de France was on. Uh-huh. And I wanted to watch the Tour on TV. And then I um, so I started to sit in the chair and watch the Tour de France as opposed to sit and lie on the bed. And then I, I would get more comfortable. So then every time I went to a rehab session, initially they would they would come and get me and then then became like okay well your mom can push you in the wheelchair or you then they gave me a wheelchair without um with a wheelchair that had a gap big enough so i could use my feet to pull myself along uh-huh. so so i'd kind of crab walk my way to the rehab room uh-huh. or the gym room whatever it's called and then eventually when i was walking then they wouldn't come get me. They said, okay, just be here at that time. So I became more like, okay, well, it's my, my duty now to meet them there at a certain time. So I would walk there initially with my little, um, my walking aid. And then eventually before I left, I was walking around without it. Now in this time period, from the time you end up in hospital to the time you're starting to work on, on rehab and you're watching the tour on TV, when did the thought of, of cycling again first come to your head? Like, when, when did you actually want to, to start cycling again and get back on a bicycle? How did you even feel when you first came to about getting back on a bicycle? Well, the funny thing is, um, I, when I was in ICU, I was already like, Dad, when I get back on the bike, I'm going to do just Ks and Ks. I'm going to ride for hours upon hours. Uh-huh. I've got a friend here in New Zealand who um, who's, he loves riding his bike, and he always does these ridiculous, ridiculously long rides he does like 300k rides of his own every now and then uh-huh. he'll do 200k's day after day and i was like well when i get back i'm gonna go and just ride with richard and i was telling my dad when i get back i'm gonna ride do these crazy weeks i'm gonna ride massive k's <laughs> uh-huh. and then um so that was nice you already so the the thought was always there. My idea was always to get back on the bike, and that's what I wanted to do. When did you start getting uh, messages from and start seeing messages from teammates and other riders, uh, people wishing you well in your recovery? And what was that like to see that? Well, initially, the first couple of days, my elite Facebook page, which is run by my media manager, he has control of it. And initially, the first few days... Between that, my mom and dad, they got thousands of messages uh-huh. of like, get well soon, keep fighting. And then there was officially a trend on Twitter, which was hashtag keep fighting Keegan or keep mm-hmm. fighting Keegs. You got a, a bottle of brandy from Margot Robbie during this time period? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually cognac. Yeah. What was that like? Um, it, was, it was a really weird experience because... I didn't know what was going on because I've gotten um, a few sort of like I've had a few just Italians come and they just come into my um, my sort of recovery room and they're like, we heard you were we, we were cyclists we love cycling, um, we we heard that you were in this um, this race and my son was in the race and we thought we'd come and visit you. We found out where you were and they just sort of came and visited. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I got this gift basket. This, this man comes in my room and he just drops off this basket. And I think, oh, who's this from? But he didn't say. And I thought it was from him. And I was like, well, thank you. Uh-huh. But then he just walked out and I was like, oh, that's a bit weird. 
so it had a note in it um and then i read the note and then it said right at the end it goes margot uh-huh. i was like margot i don't know any margos and i was thinking oh wait no way this is no way <laughs> and i thought no way because i have had a message from her before when i'd won a race in australia uh-huh um, and she said, well, she sent me a video message saying, congratulations for winning your race, Keegan. Uh-huh. And then when that happened, I was like, no way. There's no way. And then I messaged one of her friends, who I know quite well. Uh-huh. And she's like, yeah, she she sent that to you. I was like, holy crap, this is insane. <laughs> so I never touched it. I never opened it until I went to Australia last year, or this year, uh-huh. at the end of last year. And then I met her New Year's Eve. And then we drank that cognac. So you, I was going to ask you, yeah, if you have you opened the bottle yet? So you did, yeah. I haven't touched it since because it's pretty strong <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you have a tattoo now on your forearm, uh, a cross, yes. the cycling helmet, the glasses, and the date of the crash where it happened. Well, what does that tattoo mean to you now? Um, it's it's quite funny. People go, well, why'd you get the tattoo? And I said, well, it's kind of like to remind me. Of, you know, the, the time that I've been through. And they're like, well, you've got the scar on your neck. Doesn't that remind you enough? Mm-hmm. And I go, well, yes, technically that is my tattoo from the accident. But I wanted to get a tattoo anyway when I was over in Italy. And I thought I'd come back and be like, hey, mom, dad, look what I got. <laughs> and they'd be like, what the hell? But um, since but I wanted to always get something that was meaningful. Right. And I guess this one, well, this one, I don't think you can get much more meaningful than this. Mm-hmm. It's basically... The 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 the, the symbol, symbolism behind it is the helmet represents the cycling. Rimini is the place where it happened. The date obviously is the date it happened. Then there's the cross, which is representing me and my faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the cross, across the middle, there's a chip in the wood, uh, like a big crack in the wood, and that's sort of symbolic to the scar on my neck. Uh-huh. Which is coincidentally also sort of the cross-shaped scar that you have on your neck, too. Yeah, it is. It's The first time I saw it, I was like, hey, mom, it's a crucifix. <laughs> I think it's, it's it's quite weird and strange. When I think about it, I was, um, so the accident happened. And then, so I go, well, I've got the scar on my neck, but the scar looks like a crucifix. And then I go, well, that people thought I was dead, but, but then I wasn't. Right. And um, I was in a coma for three days. And after three days, I woke up, uh-huh. which is quite funny if you think about it. Uh-huh. Tell me about coming back to New Zealand for the first time. You're wheeled out into the arrivals lounge at Christchurch Airport, and you see your classmates filling the filling the lounge, welcoming you back. Yeah, that was um, that was a pretty special moment. Um, my mom had phoned Gary McNaughton, who was the cycling head coach, who I'd met all those years ago. The very first day I rode in New Zealand. And he organized, by this point, I'd obviously, I'd been out of school for two years now. And so a lot of the kids that were at the airport, I, I didn't even know, which was, which is quite cool in the sense that the, the haka is, it's quite a special thing. I guess to people around the world, it's kind of like more the rugby, the rugby scene. Mm-hmm. But, and they go, oh, well, that's just weird. They, they're just kind of chanting, really. <laughs> but it's actually really powerful when you, when you experience it in person. Mm-hmm. I've been in a haka. Not that I knew the haka, but I was still, I was doing it. But when you're on the receiving end, it's quite a special moment, really. It's quite touching. And especially at that time, I just kind of come home. 
and the only thing I really wanted to do was go home, but I knew I couldn't go home because I had to go to hospital first for a couple of weeks beforehand before I could actually go home. And then I was like, well, I'm home. And this was kind of a reminder of it, and it was quite a special moment. Yeah. It was about a year ago at this time, a bit sooner, earlier in November, you, you finally got on the bike outside again. What was that feeling like yeah. to be on the bicycle again? Yeah, that, that, I remember that moment quite well. I was very enthusiastic to get back out on the bike. I was somewhat timid about, you know, falling again. But once I got out of the bike, initially I was a bit wobbly because it's quite weird. It felt like, uh, I think it was because my one arm was completely overpowering the other one. And it sort of felt that it was very loose and unstable on top. Mm-hmm. And then after a few minutes, it kind of just, just kicked in. And the old sort of muscle memory kicked in, and then felt like normal again. And then it was it was it wasn't it wasn't a hot day, but it wasn't cold, so it was quite fresh air, which was quite nice. And I was just enjoying the ride with my dad. We stopped for coffee. It's the best coffee I ever had in my life. Huh. It was the hardest earned coffee I ever had, <laughs> and it was totally worth it. Uh, you've been we we talked about this already. You've been in in races since then. Um, what are your goals for yourself in the in the weeks and months to come? Well, I hope for a better year. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, this year has been pretty good in the sense of how much I've improved. I didn't expect to race this year. I was always gonna call this as a year of recovery, which it was. I think I I regret racing the fact that I got an absolute beating, which was not what I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. especially become being a dominant rider like I used to be and I'd always race to win and now I was racing to finish which is completely compromising everything that I believe in when I go to a race so it's been a very difficult mind shift for me but I, I, I think what I want to work on moving forward now is I've been starting to read way more I never used to read at all so I want to read and learn because I'm always going to be a student of the sport so I want to keep learning, keep pushing myself, and keep bettering myself in every aspect possible, whether it's on the bike or off the bike. And I think on a weekly basis now, I want to challenge myself to be very dedicated um, and very determined, which I, I, I am. But I want, I, want to, I want to up that ante a bit more. I want to be way more hard on myself. I want to be way more particular about the way I do things, do the hours, put the work in, and then slowly improve myself in a way that... I can actually compete in a race and not just finish, but actually be competitive. Mm-hmm. So I think my first goal of the year will be the New Zealand Cycle Classic, which is a UCR race in New Zealand. It's only, well, it's second UCR race. It's a it's a tour, so that'll um, it's it's it should suit me quite well. But again, I don't know what I'm going to be like in the at the end of January, mm-hmm. um, and because this. Unfortunately, my, my break has come at an untimely time because I, sh- I should now theoretically be be doing the, the, the kilometers where I would get a base in. So instead of having a big base, I'm going to have a slightly smaller base. But again, I'm, my main focus is not on these smaller races. I want to potentially go over to America next year. I want to potentially do like the, the Colorado Classic two of utah maybe i want to do some ucr races in america it's not quite europe but i think i need that stepping stone and unfortunately australia has lost a lot of its sort of road impetus due to everyone wanting to focus on track 
Mm-hmm. And I think I, I want to get the opportunity to, opportunity to race against the World Tour guys because they will be going to the races like the Colorado Classic and the Tour of Utah, which will be a unique opportunity for me to race against them. And hopefully, uh, my idea is hopefully I can race against them and do well against them enough to spark interest back in back in from the World Tour teams. What have you learned about yourself from this process, from everything from the crash to the rehab to getting back on the bike in the months since? Um, I learned about myself that um, I never worked as hard as I should have when I was younger. I got things quite easily. I didn't work as hard as I could have, but I could still get the results because I think I was naturally quite I'm going to say gifted, but in bunny ears, gifted as in, you know, gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, think genetically, I'm, I'm quite lucky. And, but now, unfortunately, because of the accident, you, you can't just fluke it again. You, it's just, it's a lot of hard work and it's very challenging. You, I doubt myself a lot, which I never used to do, but also I, I believe in myself 100% that I can make it back as a professional. It's a very complicated sort of self-process where you believe in yourself but you're also like well, what if or you know like sometimes shit just doesn't go to plan and I know that probably better than most people mm-hmm. but um, I think in the end if I do come back and I do make it through this this crazy journey I think it'll be for the absolute better and I think I will be grateful that I've had the opportunity to experience something like this because it's definitely made me a stronger person it's definitely made me appreciate the smaller things in life it's definitely made me want to achieve something way more than i've ever wanted to achieve anything in my life and i think it's 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 i'd like to use it as i want to achieve the top level of the sport again because i want to be a role model to people that you know things always go wrong it doesn't matter who Mm. you are what situation you're in something eventually is going to go wrong for you and that what whatever happens is doesn't it's not going to define whether you do your or live your dreams or not it's how you react to it and how you respond and how you cope with it is you think it is a problem or you think of a solution and i hope that one day through this i can hopefully inspire the youngest generation it's funny enough i'm on my my Facebook and stuff with all of my uh-huh. like the positive messages and stuff and the messages I try and get across to my, my followers. A lot of them are actually older people, which is quite <laughs> ironic because I think it's because they know they've obviously lived life and, and they can relate to it a bit more than someone who's younger and hasn't really had to experience adversity yet. Well, Keegan, thanks so much for sharing your story, and uh, I wish you the best. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, and if you're on iTunes, leave a review. It helps other people find the show. One other thing that you can do, you can take a listen to the rest of the episodes. There's lots to go through, and pass it on to someone else you think might enjoy it. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time.